pastoral staff with this church, and uh, I'm also the pastor in charge of our morning service, which is uh, 10.30 at Tiong Bahru Plaza. Okay, so pastor said I should introduce myself because uh, let's not assume that everybody knows me, huh? that's a bit of uh, being arrogant. And also, uh, I've received some feedback on my preaching. Some people say, you know, when you talk, uh, you don't sound like when you preach, huh? So, yeah, why, why like that? So, uh, I must tell you that it's because I'm very nervous. <laughs> yeah, so I practice, you see. So, I must uh, uh, show off how I uh, practice uh, in, in that sense. Uh. And also, uh, it's not so much to follow the script, uh, to know what to say. As I was talking to pastor, it's more of to know what not to say. Uh. Because, uh, you know, if I just ramble on, I will talk nonsense, which actually I will, uh, if you know me. I will talk nonsense. Okay, so let us hear the word of God. You may be following a prolific worship team who write and sing wonderful songs about Jesus. You listen to their albums every day and learn to play their songs. How to believe in God when one of them declares that he is losing his faith and it doesn't bother him? You may have a friend who witnessed to you, brought you to church, and led you in the sinner's prayer. She became your sponsor during baptism and followed up with you when you were a new believer. How to believe in God when this person gets involved in a relationship and fades away from the church? Your parent may have read you Bible stories and prayed with you every night before bed. You learn that God is love. And justification is by faith alone. How to believe in God when this person imposes rigid biblical demands on you that makes you feel trapped and burdened? As we live our lives as Christians, we may observe from time to time discrepancies between what is taught and what is done. Hypocritical behaviors from fellow Christians will cause us surprise, disappointment, even anger. We are especially affected by the contradictory behaviors of those close to us, those whom we admire. And when we have a bad encounter with a fellow Christian or accumulate enough bad encounters over time, we may question God. While some of us may be able to pull through, others eventually deconvert from Christianity. That is to say, lose their faith. Dr. John Marriott studies the process of deconversion from Christianity to atheism. And this is him with his family. And his website is very interesting. It's called Found and Then Lost. You may want to check it out. So he found that one key trend in those who are losing their faith is their rejection of the Bible. He hypothesizes that an emotional experiential shift in our Christian lives may lead the emotionally injured Christian to an intellectual reappraisal of our beliefs. What he means is that being hurt by the church makes us re-examine why we believe what we believe. And Dr. Merritt found that those who end up not believing anymore are those who no longer believe that the Bible is true. So take, for example, Mike, who is a deacon with the Baptist church. He married a Baptist girl, and they have two daughters who have been baptized. One day, Mike's father, a worship leader in his church, told Mike that he's leaving his mother. Devastated by the news, Mike read the Bible four times in one year to find answers to save his parents' marriage. 
But instead of answers, he found more questions. And eventually, his faith fell apart, and he didn't believe in God anymore. I've personally interacted with a handful of individuals who do not believe in God, non-believers and former believers alike. All of them take issue with the Bible. They know the Bible well enough to throw out difficult questions, state contradictions, and cite extra-biblical ideas and evidence against it. Very ironic. And the vibe I get is, they're not interested to discuss the issues in detail. For them, it's pretty much a done deal. They've already made up their minds. If Jesus is often portrayed as knocking at our doors and waiting for us to receive him, these individuals have locked the door and left by the back door. But it's not too late for you. You're still here. Somebody locked the doors. So what I intend to do with you today is twofold. One, I want to use the time we have to briefly tackle a couple of issues people may have with the Bible using a specific passage. And two, I would like to say to those of us who think you're losing your faith, seek Jesus Christ, the one revealed in the Bible who is shrouded in divine mystery. The passage I want to discuss today is our gospel reading, and here we have the story of the baptism of Jesus, which is also recorded in Mark and Luke. And immediately, we find an issue here. All three gospels tell the story differently, although we are certain they are talking about the same event, because you can only be baptized once. In particular, Matthew's account has a conversation between John and Jesus, particularly in verses 14 and 15, which are not found in other Gospels. This table actually shows you corresponding verses in the three Gospels, and you'll see that where, Mark, uh, where Matthew has this whole passage in red, the other two don't have. Oh, so does this mean that Matthew is more detailed? Looking further down in Matthew's account, the voice from heaven said, This is my son. While the other two Gospels record, You are my son. So since Mark and Luke match each other, so then Matthew got it wrong? And if we take these two things into consideration, does this mean that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all unreliable records of the baptism of Jesus? So does that mean then the Bible cannot be trusted? Before we come to this conclusion, let us examine our assumptions. First, by comparing the three Gospels, we are assuming that they should agree on everything because they are recording the same event. Second, we are assuming that the Gospels are recording events in the way a history textbook records history. Of course, these assumptions are wrong. To be sure, the Gospels give an account of the life and ministry of Jesus, but they are not history textbooks. Rather, the Gospels are a unique genre in themselves which seek to present Jesus Christ to those who have already committed themselves to follow him, to renew commitment to Jesus' authority, to determine how the believers will lead their lives, and to promote Jesus' example as the pattern for imitation. This is from my New Testament textbook. That is to say, the Gospels are not meant to be an unbiased presentation of what is done and word-for-word -word records of what is said. 
Instead, they are purposefully crafted presentations, propaganda, if you like, written by a Christian for other Christians to encourage their faith. Since the gospel writers were writing to people they know, their writings are necessarily different. Each gospel writer would have been inspired to tailor their presentation of Jesus to their specific audience. They would have written to address the needs and questions of their communities. To that aim, the same teaching of Jesus which they have received would have been sorted, worded, and arranged differently for different audiences. This is why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John are same-same but different. Let us apply this knowledge to the issues in our passage. Why did Matthew include a conversation between John and Jesus that is not in the other Gospels? Now, Matthew was writing his Gospel for a Jewish Christian community, while Mark and Luke were addressing Gentile Christians. A Gentile audience like us would have no issue with John baptizing Jesus. Go ahead. But for the love of God, the Jews would not have accepted the baptism of the Son of God. It is blasphemous to say that God has a need to repent and be forgiven of his sins. Most of us don't even dare to bring the offertory bags to the table. But this John has the guts to baptize God. You sure not. And he has been telling people, I am not fit to carry his sandals. So recognizing that his audience will be very disturbed, Matthew found it necessary to explain the event by including the conversation. In the original Greek language, when Jesus said, let it be so now, so that we may both fulfill righteousness, he was giving John a command. Jesus commanded John to baptize him so that both of them could fulfill all righteousness. And here, all righteousness means to be obedient to the will of God to perform what God wants to be done. So Jewish readers would be satisfied by the fact that the Son of God gave John permission to baptize him. And they would be delighted to know that both John and Jesus are obedient to God's will. So understanding that Matthew was being sensitive to his audience helps us to see why he has more material than Mark and Luke here. The other issue was Matthew's use of this is my son in contrast to Mark and Luke's you are my son. It's a bit of a grammar lesson here. Now, whether it is the demonstrative pronoun this or the second person pronoun you, the key message is the same. Jesus Christ is the son of God, the beloved with whom God is well pleased. And this is a statement about the identity of Jesus Christ. My son alludes to Psalm 2, verse 7, meaning that Jesus is the Davidic king, the promised Messiah. The beloved alludes to Genesis 22, verse 2, meaning that Jesus is like Isaac, the only son and true heir. And lastly, with whom I am well pleased, harkens back to Isaiah 42, verse 1, which we have just heard. Jesus is the suffering servant of God, the one who will bring forth justice. So Matthew phrased it differently from Mark and Luke because he was making an emphasis on Jesus. He chose his pronoun carefully to say, this one, this man here, this is the Messiah, the true heir, the suffering servant of God. 
So he didn't get his words wrong. He simply packaged the baptism story in a way to point to Jesus as the one. This pointing to Jesus is in line with the whole objective of Matthew's first four chapters. Indeed, he spent chapters one to four pointing to Jesus. It's like a huge signboard with blinking neon lights and sound effects telling you, Jesus is the Messiah. And truly, Jesus is the one whom God has promised to send us in the Hebrew scriptures. Only Jesus, the one prophesied in the Old Testament and proclaimed in the New Testament, is the Son of God. And we are to believe in this one, this Jesus who is revealed in the Bible. Unfortunately, we do not always believe in this Jesus. When I speak to some second-generation Christians and ask them how they came to faith, a common answer is, I believe because my parents believe. Let's face it. If this is the only reason why they believe, their faith is not in Jesus. Their faith is in their parents. And for some of us, our faith may be in the Christian that we admire or that friend who brought us to church or the care group leader, or, and the members who showed us kindness, or the smooth-talking pastor. I believe because they believe. Friends, this is a dangerous situation. When our faith is based in someone else other than Jesus, we are in danger of being shaken when this person falls from grace, or when our relationship with them turns sour. There are others among us who may be in a different kind of danger. We are in danger because our faith may be in Jesus, but not the one revealed in the Bible. If you think about it, children learn about God from their parents, their godparents, their grandparents, their Sunday school teachers, etc., because they do not have the capacity to read the Bible on their own. Similarly, new adult converts learn about God from Christians who come alongside to help them because they don't understand yet what the Bible is saying. Fair enough. But even for long-time believers, they may not be reading and understanding the Bible for themselves. Rather, they are relying on a piecemeal diet of a -a once-a-week pulpit sermon, and hopefully it is good, one or two verses a day from an online daily devotion, some readings from a Christian blog, and unsupervised public forum discussions. Such a diet is not enough. If we do not learn to read and understand the Bible for ourselves, the Jesus we believe in may not be the one that Matthew is pointing to. The Jesus you end up believing in may be a second-hand version pieced together from bits and pieces of learning here and there. Some of these bits may be distorted. Some of these versions may be incomplete inadequate. If you believe in a second-hand Jesus, you will be in danger when trials and tribulations come your way because that one doesn't save. There is nothing more tragic than to see people give up on all the promises of God because they rejected the true God for the wrong reasons. So please don't put yourself in such danger. 
Seek Jesus, the one revealed in the Bible. Seek him by reading the Bible for yourself and check what you have been told. Don't even believe what I say. Check the Bible. Seek him by signing up for a systematic Bible study for a season. I'm not telling you every day, every year, every month you need to do so. Just for a season, learn proper skills. And seek him by admitting to him that you don't know him. And ask him to reveal himself to you. If you already find yourself deconverting, ask yourself, has my faith been in Christ or in someone else? Do I know this Jesus from the Bible or from other sources? If your faith has been in the wrong person or the wrong version of Jesus, by all means, lose your faith. Then come and seek Jesus, the one revealed in the Bible. And as you seek Jesus in the Bible, an important thing to recognize is that Jesus is shrouded in divine mystery. And by that I mean that there are things in the, about God that we are not meant to understand. In our passage, for example, we see one of the most profound mysteries, the doctrine of the Trinity. It is written in verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. In this scene, we have in order of appearance, Jesus the Son, the Spirit of God, and God the Father, voice over now, strictly speaking, this passage does not proclaim the triune God. Nonetheless, it is a precious scene where we have the concurrent appearance of all three persons. And at the end of his gospel, Matthew states more clearly the unity and equality of the three persons in Matthew 28:19, better known as the Great Commission, which you all should know. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity states that God is three in one. If you just stepped into the sanctuary, I'm not talking about three in one coffee. I'm talking about God is one, yet there are three who are God. God is one, yet there are three who are God. Now, after centuries of theological thought and debate, we still do not know how God can exist in this form. Many have tried to use analogies to help us mere mortals grasp this divine mystery for example, the Trinity is like water, solid ice, liquid water, water vapor, tree, one. Now the problem is, water cannot exist simultaneously in three states, while in our passage we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present together. So maybe we can use the uh, analogy, the Trinity is like an egg, egg yolk, egg white, egg shell, one. This analogy suggests that God is one whole with three parts. But the doctrine states that the, each person of the Trinity is fully God and not parts of God. So cannot work. And you may have heard of this one. The Trinity is like the sun. The physical sun made out of the gas and the light emitted from the sun and the heat originating from the sun, one. This means that the light and heat comes from the star. No star, no light, no heat. 
But Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not emitted from the Father. This is a heresy, by the way. Okay, so maybe if you try to hold all these analogies together, we may have some idea of the Trinity. So imagine an egg, egg yolk, egg white, egg shell, simultaneously solid, liquid, and vapor, and then emit light and heat. Ayah, don't talk nonsense. <laughs> Ultimately, we must submit that the Trinity is a divine mystery we cannot explain. We can only acknowledge that it exists. You may think this is absurd. Why should we believe in something that is impossible to explain? The second century Christian theologian, and they've been struggling with it for centuries, Tertullian said, precisely because it is absurd. No human mind could have invented the Trinity and then asked people to believe it. The doctrine of the Trinity is not there because we can see it or because we can reason about it. It is there because God revealed it in the Bible and that is who he is. To be sure, all that we can know about God has been revealed to us by God. And God revealed himself most definitively in Jesus Christ. If God chose not to reveal how he is three in one, then it is not for us to know. And indeed, it is not required of us to understand. The fifth article of our 39 articles of religion makes this exact point. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. It is not required of any man. What this means also is that the Bible does not contain answers to everything we want answers for. It doesn't tell us how to save our parents' marriage. It doesn't tell us why we can't find a job. It doesn't tell us how to avoid cancer. But what the Bible does tell us is that we may find peace even in the midst of such troubles in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we will be delivered from all these troubles when we come into his kingdom. Our church has been emphasizing evangelism for quite some time now, and our church members have been actively reaching out to non-believers. We can see that. And yet, sitting quietly among us are brothers and sisters with doubts. I'm under no illusion that my very brief and feeble attempt will be able to snatch anyone out of fire just like that. Anyone on the road to losing their faith has a story to tell, and it is a story that must be heard and carefully processed. But I hope that today you understand that having faith and losing faith are not the only two options available to us. There exists the option to undergo a faith transition. A transition from a misplaced faith in the wrong person or the wrong Christ to a genuine faith in the true God. This entails much hard work, of course, to study and to reflect on the Bible so that you can tell what is true and what is false from all the things that you've been told. But honestly, the hardest part has already been done. 
Jesus became sin for us and hang on the cross so that we don't have to hang there and let the whole world know all the sins we've ever committed. Then he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to us so that we do not have to struggle on our own to conjure up faith. But faith is created in us by the Holy Spirit as we read and understand the Word of God. And there is yet one other option. Remember Dr. Marriott's research? Negative encounters with fellow Christians are often the starting point for deconversion. So look, the crux of the issue is not your faith. It is your festering wounds from the past. What you need is not an intellectual reappraisal of your faith. What you need is an emotional healing of your wounds. And we can make the mistake of projecting our anger, grief and disappointment with people onto God. In psychology, it's called transference. Don't make that mistake. Don't put the blame on God for what other people have done to you. But ask the Lord to heal you. Ask him to heal you. Ask him to set you free. And whether it is a faith transition or an emotional healing or both, you don't have to go through it alone. Speak to someone you can trust, especially speak to those who have been called to look after you. Hello. And then also Reverend Jonathan. We are here to help you seek Jesus, the one revealed in the Bible and shrouded in divine mystery. Let us pray. I want to give you a chance to speak to God yourself. If you're struggling with your faith, try praying this. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. If you've been wounded by Christians at home or outside, try praying this. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. O God, our Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit and for the sake of your Son, heal us and save us. Look down on your people here and see. We are helpless and harassed. We've injured others and are injured ourselves. In our confusion, we do not know who we should believe. In our misery, we forget where to find help. But we confess today, Lord, we believe in you. Help our unbelief. Therefore, merciful Lord, have compassion upon us. Heal us and save us from losing our faith in you. Set us free from bitterness, from anger, from recent hurts and festering wounds. Renew our minds with pure and holy thoughts of you and purge all idols from our memories. Grant us genuine faith 
so that we may come to the kingdom of heaven with one another, joining all who have gone before us to praise and worship your name throughout all eternity. Hear us for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is alive and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.